Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morph. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. We dive into a variety of cases in both the U.S. and abroad. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of, like the Pocatello babysitter murders or the canal murders. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime, like the Tylenol murders and the Lindbergh kidnapping. We also dive into cases that are currently breaking thanks to DNA and forensic genealogy. Sometimes you'll hear from people connected to the cases, like the interview we did with the brother-in-law of the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now, including full seasons covering the Zodiac Killer, the Golden State Killer, and Ted Bundy, and new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 40, Linda Slayton. It was 1981. 31-year-old Linda Slayton lived in an apartment complex in Lakeland, Florida with her two sons. It was Friday, September 4th, the beginning of a hectic school year and the end of a long week for the single mom. But she would not be alive to enjoy the weekend. At 8.35 that morning, Linda's sister Judy walked the few doors down to Linda's duplex, number 31. The two lived in the same government-subsidized housing complex, just a few apartments away from each other, since Linda and her boys had moved in about a week and a half earlier. Judy was bringing over a loaf of nut bread and was hoping to share it and a cup of coffee with her sister. She knocked on the door and rang the bell repeatedly, and was surprised when there was no answer. Puzzled, she turned to walk back to her apartment at number 22. In doing so, she happened to glance back at her sister's unit, where her sister's bedroom window opened to a small grassy strip, maybe 12 feet wide, between buildings. Judy was startled to see that the screen to Linda's bedroom window was missing. In Florida, you need screens, or bugs the size of sparrows will get in. Judy walked closer to the wide-open window, lifted up the shade, and peered inside. And then she started screaming. Judy ran to the front of the building, screaming for help. A maintenance man who worked for the Lakeland Housing Authority named John Allen just happened to be driving by, accompanied by two other workers. They stopped, and John got Judy to tell him what was going on. The three men and some neighbors who had heard the commotion all looked in the window and saw what Judy saw, Linda's body. John called the Lakeland police at 8.35 a.m. Responding officers found apartment number 31 locked up tight. Both the front and rear doors were secured by locks. But the complex office had a key to each unit and they opened it up. Officers entered through the front door and in the southwest bedroom, they found the cause of Judy's shrieks. A woman lay dead, face up, across the middle of the bed. Her bruised face was blank, devoid of expression, but a wire coat hanger was still twisted tightly around her neck. Her legs were spread, her arms down by her sides. Her red polka dot strapless sundress had been yanked down, exposing her breasts, and also pulled up so that her genital area was exposed. Blood leaked from her vagina, her mouth, and her nose. The woman was identified as Linda Patterson Slayton, and she was DOA. Her two young sons, 15-year-old Jeff and 12-year-old Tim, lay asleep in other rooms. They had to be shaken awake by police officers and rushed out of the apartment, 
But on the way by his mother's room, 12-year-old Tim Slayton got a look at his dead mother lying on the bed with the coat hanger around her throat and her face bloody and distorted. It was an image that he would later say was permanently burned onto his brain. When they got outside and were confronted by their crying Aunt Judy, he already knew that she was going to tell them their mother was dead. Tim and his brother Jeff were then removed from the scene and taken to the home of Linda's boyfriend Bobby for the weekend, while police investigators went to work. The boys never set foot in the apartment again. Judy, too, left the complex and moved in with her mom before eventually moving to Michigan. Linda's body remained in the apartment while photos were taken of the gruesome tableau. Investigators' notes indicate that when detectives arrived and started processing the scene, she was cold to the touch and starting to stiffen. Once the scene was photographed, she was removed at 10.49 a.m. and taken to Lakeland General Hospital. There, the assistant medical examiner, Dr. Robert Ramsey, performed an autopsy on Linda, who he measured at just 58 and a half inches tall and 90 pounds. Detectives' notes indicate that the wire hanger had cut deeply into Linda's throat, causing leather, brown-colored grooves in her throat. Dr. Ramsey cut the hanger wrapped around her throat by severing the metal at the top of the circle so they could open the wire and take it off Linda's neck without untwisting the ends. This preserved the area of the hanger that the killer would have touched. I saw photos of the severed hanger, and the circle looks remarkably small. I guess diminutive Linda's throat really would not be that large in circumference. Dr. Ramsey observed blood in her genital area and on her legs. Her eyes, head, and neck exhibited petechiae, broken blood vessels. Dr. Ramsey determined that the cause of death was strangulation, and the manner of death was a homicide. Numerous scratches on Linda's neck showed that she had struggled to remove the wire as it tightened around her throat. Dr. Ramsey detected a one-half-inch laceration inside the entrance to Linda's vaginal cavity, which was the source of the blood that had been observed by the officers at the scene. Dr. Ramsey believed it to be the result of a foreign object being roughly inserted. Fibers found on Linda's right hand and on the coat hanger were collected. Vaginal swabs were collected as part of the sexual assault kit and were determined by lab tests to contain spermatozoa. Based on the quantity of intact sperm, meaning their tails were still attached, the deposit was determined to be recent and likely to have coincided with the approximate time of the murder. The only foreign substances in Linda's system were caffeine and nicotine. The ME set the time of death at around approximately 4.30 a.m. Police notes indicate that they attended the family viewing of Linda's body at the funeral home, and they went to the funeral and collected the guest book and the license plate numbers of all the cars in the parking lot. No doubt they suspected that someone would appear to seem particularly upset, someone who had a reason to feel remorse. It didn't happen. Let's take a minute to talk about who Linda was. Linda Patterson Slayton was born on March 8, 1950, in Arkansas. She grew up in Alabama. When she died, she was estranged from her ex-husband, the boy's father, Franklin Delanor Slayton of Decatur, Alabama. Franklin was seven years older than Linda, and the two had what now would be considered a taboo relationship that led to the birth of Jeff when Linda was just 15. Tim followed three years later, but Linda and Franklin had an acrimonious breakup and divorce in 1974. Linda was left to raise their sons, Jeff and Tim, without financial help from their father. Linda worked for the school board and as a librarian for a time. She moved to Lakeland, Florida, where her mom lived for a time before returning to Alabama. There, she eventually got into a long-term relationship that turned abusive. And just about six months before she was killed, she and the boys moved to Florida and moved in with her parents temporarily. Linda had been having a hard time finding steady work. She had done stints as a cashier at the Shopping Basket grocery store and at KFC, but money was very tight, and the family relied on food stamps and the Florida Department of Children and Families payments. Linda was able to score a unit at the brand-new, federally subsidized 80-unit apartment building at 303 North Brunel Parkway, and she moved her family into their new unit less than two weeks before she was killed. The building had opened just three weeks earlier, but it was already nearly full. As we know, Linda's sister Judy also resided in the building, and their mother was scheduled to move in across the street from them on the very weekend Linda was killed. 
Despite this lucky break on the housing front, things were not easy for Linda, raising two boys on her own, with no phone in her apartment, no car, no laundry facilities, and no steady job. Linda was an accomplished seamstress who made all her own clothes and taught her sons to sew. She could cook anything, even with meager provisions. Her family said she was incredibly open and friendly and considered everyone a friend. She was outgoing to the point of being too trusting and naive, they said, even picking up hitchhikers and talking to strangers on the street, which was how she had met her current boyfriend, Bobby, who was laying pipes at a construction site Linda walked by one day and struck up a conversation. Bobby was the one who told her about the new subsidized housing complex that his company had just helped construct. Linda and her boys had only lived in their new unit for 10 days or so, but she was already friendly with a bunch of the neighbors and met for coffee and cigarettes with other residents. Tim and Jeff remembered their mother as someone who was devoted to them, took care of them, and was always there for them. It wasn't always easy for her. She didn't receive help from their father, and she seemed cursed in the romantic department, having been married three times. But she always made sure the boys had what they needed. They also said she was tough. Even though she was only 5'1 and barely 90 pounds, they recalled a physical confrontation she had had with a woman twice her size, whose kid had taken something from her boys and wouldn't give it back. Linda was the kind of mom who took her kids to the Van Halen and Kiss concert, which sounds amazing. I would describe her as a struggling single mom who wanted to do right by her kids, but felt personally dissatisfied with her lot in life and lovelorn someone who wore her heart on her sleeve and tended to be a little dramatic. She had had a nervous breakdown during her time in Alabama and had been prescribed medication to help her ease her anxiety. She said on one occasion that when the kids were grown, she wanted to get a facelift and start over. Her circumstances were far from ideal, and although she had no known enemies, there were plenty of people in her life who could have killed her. Linda's ex-husbands, all of whom are now deceased, were Frank Slayton, Kenny Slaughter, and Donnie Tucker. She was married to Kenny for less than two years, as he did not want to be a father to her boys, and she had recently split from Donnie, who was apparently abusive. More about him later. Okay, let's get into the investigation. The Lakeland Police Department assigned six detectives to work overtime shifts to try to get to the bottom of what had happened to Linda. They had found the door to her bedroom closed, but not locked. All the lights were turned off in the room. Linda's body was across the bed, her feet dangling in the air about six inches above the ground. Her red flip-flops and underwear lay on the small rug near her feet. A radio was on quietly, turned to Q105 on a bedside table. Linda apparently liked to fall asleep to it, her boys related. A fan was also on the low setting on a bureau, which also bore a three-part frame of Linda and her boys. A People's Bank ballpoint pen was found next to Linda's left shoulder. The curved head of a coat hanger, believed to have broken off the one twisted around her neck, was found on the bed. An intact hanger was found on the bed under Linda's right shoulder. Her purse seemed to be intact on the dresser. All of these things were collected, as well as the bloodstained sheets and bedding, and Linda's clothing and shoes. Evidence techs vacuumed the bedroom and bathroom and retained the contents. Detectives had no luck finding whatever sharp object had made the bleeding laceration in Linda's vagina. To this day, they do not know for sure what it was, although they have a theory. Some hairs were also collected at the crime scene. Several had been found on Linda's left thigh. The windows in the apartment complex were single-hung aluminum frame windows. They slid up and down easily, being new. All of the windows to Linda's unit were locked, except the ones that led to her bedroom. Linda's apartment was on the ground floor of the complex, and her sons told detectives that their mom always slept with the bedroom windows open because they didn't have air conditioning. She pulled the blinds down, which is how they were found, but the windows themselves were easily accessible from the ground. Police noted that the screen had been pried off the sill of the bedroom window, which was 28.75 inches off the ground. So, they surmised that the intruder had entered the apartment through the bedroom window after removing the screen. And for some reason, when he left, he took the screen with him. I suspect this was because he feared his prints would be all over it. Crime scene techs were able to lift latent prints from the window sill, and they collected the window shade in evidence because it was pretty clear that the killer had to have touched it. 
Later, detectives reenacted the entry through the window opening of 34.5 inches by 25 inches, easily stepping onto the bed below. They collected a total of 45 latent prints from Linda's unit. Distinct shoe prints were found on the soft ground under the window. Others of the same pattern were found inside the bedroom, one on Linda's pillowcase. This is because the head of Linda's bed was directly under the open window. The intruder would have had to step through the window directly onto the pillow. One set of these prints is incredible. It's clear as day. It's almost as if the guy was trying to leave the perfect print of each foot. The soles of his shoes have a very distinct, somewhat worn zigzag pattern. More of the same shoe prints were collected from the floor next to the bed where Linda lay and from in front of the closet where it was suspected the coat hanger came from. The hangers found on and near her body were consistent with the ones in the closet. The cheap-looking sliding door to the closet, the kind that always comes off the tracks, was standing open. Grass and soil samples from under the bedroom window were collected and maintained in evidence. There were no shoe prints in the dirt outside the back door to the unit. This guy had definitely climbed in the window, which he must have observed standing open. When the police entered the unit after being summoned by John Allen, they found Linda's 15-year-old son Jeff still asleep on the fold-out bed in the living room. The exterior door to the unit opened into that room, which was open to the tiny kitchen. They had to shake him awake, and Jeff told them he hadn't heard a thing during the night. So it seemed that the entire attack had gone down in Linda's bedroom where she was found. So either the killer had climbed in the bedroom window while Linda was in the room, or he had climbed into the window earlier that evening and waited for Linda to come into the bedroom and get ready for bed. There was a large wooden armoire in her room that could have hidden a man as well as a utility closet. Could the killer have lain and waited in Linda's bedroom, patiently biding his time until she came in to retire for the evening? What was weird was there was no sign of a struggle. The bed was still made, the linens not must, the fan and lamp upright. What had happened here? Detectives started trying to get a handle on the timeline. They sat down to talk to Linda's older boy, Jeff. Here's what he told them. On Thursday evening, he came home from football practice after school. He and his mom had argued. He wanted some money to buy some snacks at the convenience store, but she was making steaks for dinner and said no. Jeff was mad, and she said, if you don't like my rules, there's the door. Jeff stomped out at 5.30 and got on his bike and went over to his grandparents' house, where the family had lived for a few months until very recently. Linda's mom and stepdad did what grandparents do. They fed Jeff, let him watch TV, and then drove him home. He was dropped off around 9.30. The door was unlocked when they got there, but Linda and Tim weren't home. Linda had left Jeff's dinner in a covered dish in the kitchen. Around 10, Linda appeared to tell Jeff that she and his brother were hanging out playing cards at the neighbor's apartment, right next door at number 32. Jeff walked over to Unit 64 and brought his friend Walter, a 13-year-old double amputee in a wheelchair, over to watch TV for a bit. He also stopped next door to say hello to some people at the apartment his mom was at. Then he took his friend home and lay on his bed watching Nightline. Linda and Tim came home during this time, sometime between 11 and 11.30 p.m. Linda started washing up the dishes, but Jeff asked her to leave them until the mornings so he could go to sleep without the lights and noise. So just after midnight, she went into her bedroom, Jeff resumed, to go to bed. He watched TV until about 12.15 and then shut off the TV and went to sleep. He didn't awaken during the night. We all know that teenagers sleep like the dead. He had not heard a thing when his mom was killed just one room away. Linda's mom, Margaret Harris, backed up this story. Jeff had been over at their house that evening, and when they brought him home, Linda wasn't home. One thing that's unclear from the case file, and I'm not sure detectives ever really got a firm answer, is whether Linda went back out to the party at the apartment next door after her boys were asleep. Neither Jeff nor Tim heard her do so, but... Many people at the party seemed convinced that Linda was there late into the night, that she had stayed until about 1 a.m. Since the time of death was estimated at about 4.30, that does seem to make some sense. If the killer was hiding in her room waiting, or even if he was parked somewhere outside watching the apartment, he would have known when she was back and preparing to go to bed. It's worth noting that Linda was not in bed when she was attacked, 
She was still wearing the dress she was wearing all that evening, the red polka dot dress. The kids told police she usually slept in her underwear, and her boyfriend, she said, she sometimes slept in a nightgown, but no one reported that she was in the habit of sleeping in her clothes. Plus, crime scene photos show that the bed was still pristine, neatly made with perfectly positioned pillows. Linda had been attacked before she ever got undressed and ready to turn in for the night. Photos from the crime scene back up Jeff's story. They show a sink full of dishes, a bottle of palm olive at the ready, a dish towel crumpled on the floor. Someone had been doing the dishes and then stopped. Are you one of the millions of people just like me who have experienced anxiety, stress, or sleepless nights? You could benefit from CBD. Feels is a premium CBD that will help keep your head clear and help you feel your best. It's hassle-free and delivered directly to your door. Feels naturally supports reducing stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. There's no hangover or addiction to worry about. I started taking CBD when I had an injury from running and also felt that, in general, I wasn't sleeping well. All you need to do is place a few drops of feels under your tongue and feel the difference within minutes. The thing to remember about CBD is that finding your right dose is important and everyone's dose is different, so you have to experiment a little bit. But it's never been easier when you join the Feels monthly membership. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel at any time. In fact, Feels even offers a free CBD hotline with dosage experts to help you with your personal experience so you can find your perfect starting point. And if you need a dose of chill on the go, pop one of Feels' new CBD-infused mints, which are really delicious. And also, of course, give you fresh breath. Start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com DNA and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's an incredible deal. That's feels.com DNA. F F-E-A-L-S dot com slash DNA to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash DNA. Tim, who was only 12 years old, also talked to detectives. He had pretty much the same story. After school, he'd come home and then gone to football practice. He got a ride to the practice field at Winston Elementary from one of his coaches, a guy named Joe, who often drove him because Linda didn't have a car. In a testament to how universally clueless kids are, Tim didn't have any idea what Coach Joe's last name was. Tim said that his mom didn't have a car, so sometimes he got rides to practice from his Aunt Judy, and once or twice a neighbor gave him a ride. But on this evening, Joe drove him to and from practice along with another kid from the complex named Monty in his yellow Toyota Celica. Joe dropped Tim off at home around 8 or 8.30. There, Tim ate dinner and went to the neighbor's apartment with his mom to play cards. There were, he guessed, nine or ten people there, playing cards and Monopoly and drinking some beer. A woman who said she was a palm reader looked at Linda's hand and said her lifeline was very short, which Linda thought was amusing. She and Tim got home around 11.30. When they arrived in the apartment, Jeff was on the couch watching TV. Jeff preferred his own space, so he slept in the living room, and Tim had the back bedroom to himself. He said Linda made herself a cup of tea, and he went to his room and went to bed. She could have gone back to the party next door for a bit, he said, but he didn't hear anything during the night either. So now detectives had a better idea of the timeline. Linda had been killed in her bedroom by an intruder who entered through the window and attacked her sometime between 1 a.m. or later and 8.30 a.m. They didn't know exactly when the guy had climbed in the window. Presumably it was after dark, since the complex was a high-traffic area, and Jeff and Linda's mom both said, they had checked Linda's room when Margaret dropped Jeff off around 9.30, and they didn't notice anything amiss. So sometime after that, the intruder climbed in. Whether Linda was already in the room when this happened remains unknown to this day. Police canvassed the neighbors trying to find anyone who might have seen or heard anything the night before. They spoke with a guy named Isaiah from apartment 33, who I'm guessing was also playing cards with Linda and the residents of apartment 32. He said Linda was new to the complex, only having lived there about a week and a half, but she was very friendly and made an effort to meet all her new neighbors. He said she and Tim had returned to their own unit late on Thursday night, and her 15-year-old son Jeff was already in the apartment. Isaiah echoed what everyone in the complex was afraid of. He told the Tampa Tribune, quote, There is some talk that maybe the guy was already inside when she came home. The neighbors were very unsettled by the murder that had happened practically under their noses. 
A resident of apartment 34, Diane Huggins, said that she didn't hear or see anything that night, but now she and everyone else were sleeping with the windows closed and locked. Some people were considering moving out. The kids were no longer allowed to play outside after dark. The Tampa Tribune article from September 7th contains a quote from 61-year-old resident Inez Eddy, who said, quote, I'm not scared of being raped. I'm too old, but I'm still not going to walk around here at night. Some residents reported that their windows, too, indicated someone had tried to enter their units, and others called in reports of suspicious people in the area. Police had to investigate each of these calls, but by September 11th stated that while they had several leads, they had no suspects. Lieutenant Andrew Yevchak told the Tampa Times that investigators were hopeful that some specimens collected at the scene and sent to the Tallahassee Crime Lab would provide some clues. I don't know exactly what these were, but I do know that Sergeant Pickett recovered several blonde or light brown hairs from the top of the chain link fence south of Linda's apartment. Also, a partial palm print was found at the scene. It did not qualify for APHIS because it was incomplete, so it had to be compared by the human eye to other palm prints on record. Police also collected the coat hangers, the pen on the bed, and so on. All this was tested for any evidence, but in the days before DNA, they could only test for prints and blood. Fingerprints weren't that helpful, though. The apartment was a small two-bedroom, and it had been full of workers, maintenance men, and so on, who left prints behind that were not linked to anyone. Police continued what they called intensive interviews with friends, relatives, and associates of Linda. They spoke with people who had worked with her, her parents and her sister, and so on. They also tried to verify the boys' stories about their mom's last day. One of the people they talked to as they did their due diligence of the timeline was Tim's assistant football coach, Joe. They conducted an interview with him on September 6th. He confirmed that indeed he had picked up Tim at the apartment complex at 5.30 and driven him to football and then dropped him off afterwards around 8.30. He said he had never met Linda. Remember, she and the boys were very new to the area. But she had come out to the car when he dropped Tim off and thanked him for driving her son. Everyone who had talked to Linda in her final days had said that she did not seem worried about anything out of the norm. Police asked whether she had complained about harassment or prowlers or arguing with anyone. Was there anyone in the complex who was bothering her? After all, it was a bizarre coincidence that she moved there and less than two weeks later she was killed there. But everyone said no. Linda's biggest problems were her not getting along with her son Jeff and Jeff and Tim's father Frank refusing to support his kids. But nothing was causing her fear or nervousness, and she had no known enemies. In fact, Linda was a friend to everyone. Linda's sister Judy told investigators that her sister was a scrapper. She strongly believed that if Linda had been awake or conscious at the time of the assault, the perpetrator would have had a fight on his hands. She also said that Linda was very open with her boys about men she was seeing. If Linda had known the man who came into the apartment that night, she would have let him in the front door and not made him crawl through the window. She knew Jeff was a super sound sleeper. The apartment door opening and closing would not have awakened him, as was proved true later when he did not wake up even with police officers in the room. Linda's unit was an end unit with more windows than most opening to the outside. One photo shows a kid's bike abandoned on the small concrete patio lying on its side. Children lived here. The silent brick behind it spoke of nothing, it was a brand new building, and it had no secrets, until it did. I took a look at the photos of the open window. It's so low to the ground a child could climb through it. But the person who brazenly removed the screen and sneaked into Linda's bedroom was not a child. Far from it. It was a man who was capable of choking the life out of a woman with a coat hanger. Police were thorough. They checked local bars to see if Linda ever came in, including the grossly named Peekaboo Lounge, and AFC Liquors, which Linda went to once in a while. They interviewed two men Linda had met there and casually dated. They canvassed the entire complex and spoke with residents of each unit. They checked the Polk County Jail and looked into anyone who was released in the days before Linda's murder. They spoke to the employees of the building company who had constructed the complex including their subcontractors like pipefitters, plumbers, and electrical. They tried to chase down a blue VW van and a red Dodge Demon that had been seen driving through the complex in the wee hours of the morning on the night Linda was killed. Both were driven by white males. 
They contacted everyone in Linda's address book. So let's talk about some suspects. There were quite a few. Linda's life was populated with an awful lot of men. There was one person who was looked at hard by police early on, although later they would deny that he rose to the level of an actual suspect. And as hard as this is to grasp, I'm talking about Jeff Slayton. Jeff was 15, definitely old enough to pull off the rape and murder. The police had a hard time believing that he was home, asleep on the couch one room away, and he didn't hear anything. Jeff admitted to police that he and his mother had argued on the night she was killed. And Linda's friends and family said that she had been battling with Jeff lately, who was in a rebellious phase, to the point that she wanted him to go live with his father for a while. The struggling single mom was so frustrated by butting heads with her unruly teenage son that she was considering therapy. Further, Jeff's father's friend tipped police that she believed Jeff could have killed Linda because she had heard him say that he wished she were dead. Tim also told police that the previous week, Jeff and Linda had argued over Jeff going to the dentist. Jeff had called their mom some names and she had slapped him. And in what must have looked pretty bad, Jeff's prints were found on the bedroom windowsill. Jeff told the investigators that he had climbed through the bedroom window twice when he locked himself out of the apartment, including once earlier that very week. Jeff further intrigued investigators when he refused to allow them to hypnotize him in order to enhance his recall. He had been polygraphed and his results indicated no deception. But sneakers belonging to Jeff were found to have a zigzag tread very similar to the shoe that left the prints in Linda's room and outside the window. In short, as both Tim and Jeff acknowledged in a later interview, Jeff was considered a suspect. Tim recalled being pulled out of class by police investigators quizzing him about his brother. This, despite police notes dated December 4, 1981, saying that the polygraph examiner, quote, advised that Jeff could be eliminated as a suspect based on a second polygraph. Eventually, investigators got to know Jeff and became confident that he had not killed his mom. His sneaker sole didn't match the shoe prints in the room, and he passed the poly. But not until DNA results came in years later was he officially taken off the suspect list. Police acknowledged that detectives had been in contact with Linda's first ex-husband as part of their investigation. Franklin Slayton was a lifelong resident of Alabama who worked as a cleaner at a car dealer. He did have a record for check fraud and transporting of stolen goods in Alabama, and there is an allegation by a witness in the case file that he was a member of a famed white supremacist organization. Frank was being sued by the state of Florida for back child support he owed Linda, which he had never paid. But of course, it doesn't make sense for Frank to have killed Linda over the child support because then he would have had to take custody of the kids, something that he apparently was not remotely interested in, and neither was his current wife. Frank Slayton was also eventually eliminated by DNA. Jeff was the one who insisted his father be tested. He told the ledger, quote, They say a lot of times in a case like this, it's someone close to you who did it, Jeff said. I just needed to know. The next bit is directly from notes in the case file. Quote, On October 29, 2004, at approximately 9 a.m., Sergeant Ivancevich and I met with Frank Slayton and Jeff Slayton in the conference room located in the criminal investigations section. Frank and Jeff Slayton were concerned that Donald Tucker could have killed the victim. Tucker used to be married to the victim. They were married in Lawrence County, Alabama. Tucker and the victim were divorced around 1980. The victim moved to Lakeland with her two children in February 1981. Tucker helped them move to the victim's parents' house. Tim Slayton, victim's youngest son, says that the victim and Donald Tucker got into an argument approximately six months before the victim was killed. According to Tim, Donald Tucker threatened to kill the victim. End quote. Donnie Tucker was Linda's most recent ex-husband. The two were only married for about a year. Their divorce was finalized in February 1981. He and Linda had a rocky relationship, and the boys and Linda's mom and sister told investigators that he had hit Linda, and when they split, he threatened to get back at Linda and even to kill her. He had written several letters to her on one hand telling her that he loved her, and on the other telling her that he hated her and she ruined his life. But Donnie had helped her and the boys move from Decatur, Alabama into Linda's mom's place down to Florida when their marriage ended. 
As far as the family knew, Donnie did not know that Linda and the boys had moved into their new apartment, so he would not have known where to find Linda. Donnie had a record in Alabama, and he had worked in Lakeland at the Standard Service Station at I-4 and Highway 98N, so he was familiar with the area. But Detective Grice obtained Donnie's prints from a county in Alabama where he had been incarcerated, and they were not a match. I'm not sure whether Donnie was ever eliminated by DNA, but he didn't kill Linda. Kenny Slaughter, Linda's other husband, had not been heard from in years, according to Linda's family. They had no idea where he was and didn't think he knew where Linda was either. Then there was Bobby, Linda's boyfriend, whose full name I'm not disclosing. He and Linda were dating at the time of the murder, although it seemed they may have broken things off just a couple of days before Linda was killed. Bobby worked for Empire Pipe. Linda met him two and a half months earlier as he was working in the area of her parents' house. She went for a walk. He was working on some plumbing in the street, and they got to talking. Bobby's company had installed the plumbing on the new complex, and he's the one who told her about the housing units there. Bobby was looked at extensively. He was interviewed a number of times and was even pushed to confess. He didn't help himself by failing to show up for a polygraph and showing up for another one stoned on pot. Also, Linda had told some people that he was jealous and possessive. There was an incident when he had been looking for her and had gone to several laundromats trying to find her. She told a couple of friends that he had tracked her down, indicating that he was following her. He had last been seen by her sons at the apartment on the Tuesday before Linda died. During that visit, the two of them had reportedly decided to take a break from their relationship. Bobby drove him to football practice, and then he went home. He never saw Linda again, he said, although they spoke on the phone on Wednesday. Bobby said in his interviews that he loved Linda, but that she was interested in marriage and he was too young and had to care for his sick mother. Bobby did not have an alibi that the police really considered satisfactory. His mom, Hazel, and his sister, Nancy, both said he was home all night on the night Linda was killed, but both of them went to bed. He was there when they retired for the evening, but who's to say that he didn't go out after they were asleep? And although Tim and Jeff both told police that they liked Bobby and he was nice to their mom, Tim also said that the two had had a fight on the weekend before she died. And he said that Bobby had showed them how to choke someone if they ever got into a fight. Furthermore, he didn't attend Linda's funeral and refused to talk about the murder with his colleagues and friends. But Bobby was not known to have a temper, he wasn't a drinker, and he had an excellent rating at work. And he had no reason to climb in Linda's window, so he wasn't quite the perfect suspect. Then there was Earl Pig, P-I-G-G. Pig was the subject of a tip from a woman who said Linda and Pig knew each other, and Pig was bad news. He was incarcerated in Kentucky in January 1982 for a shooting and incest situation. Two witnesses told police they thought Linda had been at Pig's trailer on more than one occasion. Pig ran the mobile station at I-4 and Highway 98 in Lakeland, and Tim said his mother frequented that gas station often and went inside to see someone when they were there, and Pig looked familiar. But neither Linda's mom nor Judy recognized him. Detectives interviewed Pig in the Polk County Jail in February 1982. He remembered Linda as a regular at the service station he used to work at, but he denied that she had ever been to his place or that they had any kind of relationship. He admitted that he was familiar with the complex where Linda lived, but he had never been there, he said. He willingly gave blood and hair samples, and police could never tie him to Linda's murder. Then there was Frank Potts. It's unclear to me how Potts was connected to Linda, but he was from Alabama and, in fact, in 1995 was sentenced to life in prison for the 1989 murder of a 19-year-old male from Indiana named Robert Earl Gines. At the time of that conviction, Potts was already serving a life sentence with a minimum term of 25 years for sexual battery of a child under the age of 12 in Lakeland. He had also been charged with sexually assaulting a 10-year-old Lakeland girl in 1982. According to UPI, he was a suspect in 13 different murders or missing persons cases. He eventually confessed to killing two more men. According to his cellmate, Potts had said he killed Linda Slayton because she knew he had killed those two men. Potts continued to pop up in the case file over the decades, meeting with Jeff Slayton and Detective Grice as late as 2006. But 
He didn't have any information. He was just claiming that he was framed for the crime he was serving time for and pointing the finger at a specific law enforcement officer for the murder of Linda. He was full of crap, and he didn't kill Linda. Two guys were also looked at because police discovered that they had each spent time with Linda alone on the very day she was killed. One of these was a guy named Chuck, who had been Linda's manager at KFC several years earlier. There was nothing between them, he told police, but he had spent about four hours at her place on Thursday during the day having coffee and talking. She had been picking his brain about what to do about her son and talking about her financial issues. He didn't admit this, but Linda told several people at the party later that Chuck gave her a bottle of speed pills to sell. She passed them around at the gathering on the night she died. What's strange is that many people at the gathering that night saw Linda with the bottle of pills, including her son, Tim, but it was never found. Then there was Frank, the complex maintenance guy. He had fixed a leak in Linda's roof and he had been over for coffee on a few occasions, including on the day she was killed. Her sons told the police that Frank had come on to Linda. She had rejected his invitation of a joint trip to Tampa. There was nothing tying him to the crime. Nelson Harris, stepbrother to Linda and Judy, was also on the person of interest list. He was Linda's insurance guy, and he stopped by her apartment around 11 on Thursday morning to pick up a premium payment. Again, another name in the case file with no concrete connection to the murder. And lots and lots of other men were looked at. Linda had dated around quite a bit and had a stream of ex-boyfriends in the area. She also had contact with some individuals who seemed suspicious. For example, when she died, she had letters in her possession from a convict serving time in prison. This was a cellmate of her stepfather's son, Terry, who had dated Judy. The cellmate wrote to both Linda and Judy. It was harmless, but Linda being acquainted with men in prison definitely raised alarm bells. Another guy she had dated had been involved in a fraudulent check investigation. Almost all of these guys gave hair and blood samples for elimination purposes. Remember, some foreign hairs had been collected from Linda's thigh at the scene. Furthermore, the area as a whole was teeming with possible suspects. The reality is the complex was full of people who were down on their luck or worse, lowlifes. Several residents had records, including one ex-police officer who was mentally unstable. There was lots of smoking, drinking, partying, and comings and goings at all hours. Police walking the grounds found human feces and people sleeping behind the buildings. It was a very complicated setting in which to conduct a murder investigation, because people were so transient and some were sketchy. The file is full of police reports from residents of broken screen windows, attempted breaking and entering, stolen possessions, strange noises, unfamiliar vehicles, and so on. For example, there was a guy named Jerome who was called in as a prowler in late 1982. He was walking around the complex units and looking in the windows. A Lakeland police officer stopped him and found that he had a piece of sharpened coat hanger wire sticking out of his closet. The guy's story was that he was a newspaper delivery boy for the Lakeland Ledger, and someone had been stealing the papers he was delivering, so he was walking around trying to find out who was doing it. The coat hanger in his pocket, he said, had nothing to do with that. He used it to repair fishing nets. But he changed his story later and said the wire was for something else. So, a weird guy stalking around the place with a coat hanger he can't explain. Police had their hands full. It has to be said that the case file is a reflection of the times. There are quite a few instances in which the name of a person of interest appears to have been included for no good reason other than that they were black. The irony here is that Detective Pickett, who was the lead detective, was also black. And he said at times people expressed that he should not be the one leading up the investigation into the death of a white lady. Quoted in the ledger, he said, quote, Someone told me no black officers had any right to look at a white lady naked. The comment got to Pickett, he admitted, causing him to investigate the scene differently, knowing how others were watching him. He took meticulous notes and left no stone unturned in his investigation. It just wasn't enough. Linda's boyfriend Bobby told police something I found interesting. He said that one night about two weeks before her death, he had spent the night at Linda's. This from the police file, quote, he was staying overnight and it sounded like someone was at the utility room door on the patio. He got up and looked but didn't see anything. 
This occurred around 2 or 3 a.m. One more bit of info from the case file that could be something or nothing. A fellow resident of the apartment complex named Diane Huggins, who had befriended Linda at the dumpster, told investigators that very late on Thursday night, the night Linda died, around 3 a.m., she was awake on her couch, and she heard someone outside walking across the backyard. The units all shared the same yard. The back doors opened onto a shared bit of grassy land beyond the unit's small individual patios, which had a back fence bordering the area and clotheslines attached to stakes in the ground. Another resident reported seeing a man in dark clothing running across the backyard. Had the killer passed by on his way to or from Linda's? Diane also reported that someone had broken into her unit very shortly after the murder. Her screen was ripped and her clothes and closet had been rifled. At least one other resident reported a prowler during the week Linda was murdered. And another resident of the complex reported a burglary of apartment 34 on the night of September 4th. Reports like these seemingly minor events at the complex contributed to the mountain of things that investigators were obliged to check out to no avail. Years passed. The Slayton boys were raised by their maternal grandparents in North Lakeland. They stayed out of trouble, but neither graduated high school. I didn't care about school. I didn't care about nothing, Tim told the ledger. If my mom were alive, she'd never have put up with that. Eventually, both men established their own families, but their mother's unsolved case haunted them. They constantly called the Lakeland police for updates, made suggestions of names police should look at, and pushed the media to cover the case. In 1997, LPD homicide detective Brad Grice happened to see the case files from the dormant Slayton case. He noted with interest that there were items and evidence that would yield DNA profiles if tested. The case was officially reopened in 1998. In the early 2000s, a DNA profile was extracted from Linda's sexual assault kit that investigators were confident came from the killer. Detective Grice set about trying to eliminate people in the case file. He worked the case for more than 16 years. The brothers became close with him and told him he could not retire until he solved it. And in 2005, he caught an oversight. Here are his notes from the case file. Quote, Over the course of this investigation, I have asked on a number of occasions if the DNA profile in this case was being compared on a regular basis in the national database. I was told that it was. Of course, he's referring to the CODIS database. But while the profile was being searched regularly in the Florida criminal database, Detective Grice learned in May 2005 that the profile had never been entered into the National CODIS database because the DNA profile did not meet the FBI's standards to be entered into the database. Because the DNA samples had been analyzed using now outdated methods and equipment, it was insufficient for entry into CODIS. At this time, Detective Grice sent the following items to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement for analysis in an attempt to obtain an STR profile that was adequate for entry into CODIS, the victim's vaginal swabs, the victim's fingernail scrapings, and the flatbed sheet. This was successful, and by June 2005, the male DNA profile in Linda's case from the vaginal swabs had been entered into CODIS. It received no hits. In a May 2005 brainstorming session, Detective Grice met with several members of the FDLE, including three crime analysts. One of these was retired FDLE special agent and criminal profiler Wayne Porter. He made the following shorthand observations. Scene, disorganized, sex crime, scene not staged, not rage or frenzy, victim targeted, not consensual sex suspect, not the victim's children, mid-twenties to early-thirties, probably a neighbor, peeping Tom, good burglar, does not have the skills to seduce the victim. Suspects that commit these types of crimes usually are the same race as the victim. In July 2005, some more testing was conducted on some of the items in physical evidence. These were things like the window shade from Linda's room, the hangers, and the pen that was found on the bed. They were looking at them using modern, sophisticated equipment to see if there were any blood traces on them. There weren't. Lakeland investigators sent these items, as well as Linda's flip-flops, the pillowcase with a shoe print on it, and Jeff's Slayton sneakers to the FDLE for updated testing. 
In 2006, the 25th anniversary of Linda's murder, Jeff and Tim decided to pool $8,000 of their own hard-earned money to add to a reward fund for Linda. Crime Stoppers already had a $2,000 reward offered for information, but Linda's son's addition, earned through overtime shifts at their jobs as a trucker and a welder, brought the amount to $10,000. Hoping to encourage some tips, they talked to the media about how devastating their mom's murder was. Jeff said he was so traumatized that he slept with a knife under his pillow for years. I cried for two weeks when it happened, Tim said. Judy moved out of the building and out of town. The increased reward was a last-ditch effort to solve the case through tips, but it failed. Detective Grice doggedly set to work trying to obtain buckle swabs from many people in the case file to eliminate them as suspects. People like Chuck and Frank and Bobby and all the people at the party, all of whom cooperated fully. He got the DNA of people already in the system, like Potts, and some who had died had been autopsied. He got a buckle swab from Clarence Harris, Jeff and Tim's grandfather, who had been married to Linda's mom at the time of Linda's death. All were eliminated. Modern fingerprint analysis also failed to turn up any IDs on the prints found in Linda's apartment, except two which were her own, found on a Pizza Hut water glass next to her bed and the pink lamp on her bedside table. Jeff and Tim remained hopeful. They felt that the violence of the crime indicated that the murder was personal. She was killed by someone she knew who wished her harm. Tim told the Tampa Tribune, quote, It was a very violent crime. I don't think somebody random would do that. I want to know a name. I want to look him in the eyes and ask him why. In 2016, the 35th anniversary of Linda's death came and went. Her sons were now in their 50s, but their pain was just as raw as if she had died yesterday. Amazingly, they had not given up. There's still hope, Tim Slayton told the ledger. But in the same article, Jeff said, quote, Sometimes I get worried I'll take my last breath and die without knowing. Detective Grice had finally retired but he continued to be involved in the case from the sidelines and to update Jeff, whom he bowled with regularly. Detectives Scott Kircher and Russ Hurley took over the case. I always tell people to be nice to their moms because they're lucky they still got her, Jeff Slayton said. I sure wish I still had mine. That's the end of part one of the episode on Linda Slayton. Please listen to part two available right now.